tonight by Neil Kovold and Terry Whitehead. It's Europe calling. Welcome to our podcast for the week ending the 16th of October. Well, we have had a very, very turbulent week and Thursday we had a terror event in Norway and Friday night uh, we have the headlines that I'm looking at right now. On the 15th of October, the terror police will probe a murder and this is Sir David Amos and cops uh, arrest Somalian man, 25, after Tory MP was stabbed repeatedly at his church constituency surgery amid screams from onlookers as police launch immediate security reviews for all politicians. This particular staunch right-winger who was part of the Thatcher revolution um, was was a proud Eastender who fought for Brexit, campaigned against fox hunting and pleaded with Boris to end knife crime. Obviously, the, the, you would expect fine words to come from the Prime Minister. Our hearts are full of shock and sadness. The Prime Minister leading tributes to the MP killed in an attack on democracy. Uh, then, of course, the common speaker, Lindsay Hoyle, went on to demand or will be demanding that the police officers protect MPs at all surgeries. As politicians warn, we can't go on like this. Uh, this is the sixth MP that's been killed since the Second World War. Well, as if that wasn't bad enough, um, the newspapers are full of gloom and doom and misery everywhere. And one particular headline was, don't fool yourselves that Christmas will be fine, whatever the government say. Um, Port's boss warns of festive chaos amid a logjam at Southampton docks and unions threatening truckers strike as shelves sit empty, toys soar in price and energy also is a big problem whichever way and wherever you look. Thursday I telephoned Neil and we were looking at the news that was then breaking of a big problem coming from a madman with a bow and arrow in Norway. You're listening to Vince Tracy and Neil Coble. It's Europe Calling. What's in the news this week? especially from the UK and from Spain. Europe calling. Uh, we're getting news coming through about a bow and arrow attacker who killed five people in Norway. And, uh, you know, th this is going to feel like a recurring theme, as I tell you. He was known as a Muslim convert, known to the police for radical radicalisation. This is according to the police, by the way, not my opinion or anything like this. Um, and he escaped arrest before going to kill five people. He's a 37-year-old Dane, uh, not been named as yet. Uh, began his attack at a supermarket in the town of Kongsberg, 6.12 on Wednesday, firing a bow and arrow at locals and then cops who arrived at 6.18. Now, uh, this was sort of presented as a, though it's only just happened, but... Um, I mean, realistically, 
how many more times are we going to hear about these converts to Islam known to have been radicalised? It seems to just go on and on and on, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, when when they know, and all you know, the police and uh, you know, and all the secret service people know, surely they can keep an eye on them. I know you can't stop a madman just picking up a gun and walking into a shop and shooting people. I mean, or bow and arrow as this one is, but you, you've got to keep your eye on these, surely. Otherwise, it's going to just keep happening all the time. It's just going to keep repeating itself because they think. They're going to go and find 24 virgins and anything. You know what I mean? It's a nonsense. Well, the, the thing is, I'm reading again, the most recent incident was March of last year when he went into his father's house armed with a gas-powered uh, BB pistol and threatened to kill him. He fled the property and yeah. left the cult behind. Um, two family members subsequently took out a restraining order against him. And in 2012, he was convicted of aggravated robbery and possession of cannabis with court documents indicating he has similar offences on his record from years before that. Um, William the Conqueror... I mean, once he do Sorry, well, once he'd done that to his father, they should have put him where we used to put him years ago. We used to call them lunatic asylums, didn't we? Yeah. No, yeah, we what did. they do is, it's caring the community. But there's nobody looking at, you know, looking after him or looking into him. Well, That's the problem. That you let people like that on the streets, you know, anything can happen. Well, uh, th this is a comment from William the Conqueror writing in the paper. A recent study showed that de-radicalisation doesn't work and there are people out in society that are still a danger to society. If that's the view of experts, then whatever programmes to change mindsets are a waste of time and money. You may say deport them exactly. or whatever, but the bulk of our problem is not imported, but homegrown. You can't get rid of people born, raised and living in the country and a bona fide citizen of that country. Issue is the ease of access to materials and individuals that promote terrorism with a pretext of religious obedience and faith. He's right, isn't he? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous that they've originally come from somewhere else if they cause a problem in your country, then this, surely the governments must make the laws that, whoa, you, you're not staying here. Away you go. You know, after you've served your time in prison, away you go. You've been sent back to where you come from. Simple as that. But it's I think not the big science, is it? The, well, the big thing really is that, the, as the guy says in his comment, there is. You know, the de-radicalisation programmes don't work. So uh, why are no. we still obsessed with trying to uh, make those work when we know they don't work? There's got to be a reason behind this. For me, you know, this is part of something that it's like, you know, when you've got the um, people who are illegally entering a country by coming in on the boats. There's got to be something that is obvious that is not being obvious because otherwise it would be stopped, wouldn't it? Well, it should be stopped with the first boat. If you, if you don't, like we've said, you know, all the time, you know, you, you, there's no punishment. There's no uh, boundaries anymore. You can come and do what you want and all they do got us all jump on the bandwagon saying, well, they're coming from war-torn countries. Yeah, but they've been through another eight or ten before they get to UK. So there were no wars in them countries, so that it's where you first land. Mm. You know, it, it just makes people ill. Well, as thinking, a, you know, hang on. we're going to be overrun here. Well, as you're talking about the UK, I'll, I'll talk about uh, the 
Insulate Britain protester. Now, this was something I picked up in the paper. She was married to a transport for London director and said she was just being a human, doing her best. Uh, he, of course, has stepped down from his £170,000 a year role and perks that entitle her to free travel. This is his wife, who's 54, had previously vowed to unleash hell on drivers during the, pro- uh, pro- the protests, despite her long-term partner's role. She'd been arrested several times during the M25 blockades with fringe group Insulate Britain and further activities with Extinction Rebellion. Her husband, uh, Benedict Plowden, is leaving at the end of the month after standing down a few weeks ago. She said last night from the door of her private estate, £1.6 million property, as you already know, my per, my husband works for TFL. I'm working as an activist, if you want to call it that, but I'm just a human being, do my best. Now, the TFL Transport for London bosses were aware of her views and actions, but insisted it was Mr Plowden who resigned for unrelated reasons to pursue new opportunities. Um... I mean, maybe he, maybe, he, maybe he's going on twenty five M twenty five tomorrow with her when he, uh, end of month when he retires. But she should have been locked up after the first couple of, of arrests, shouldn't she? Because you're not showing them that there's any any authority that's going to do anything about it. Take him straight to prison for a few days, eight days, ten days, and if you know, and then keep adding it on if they keep when you let him out and come back again. Well, she actually, she actually glued herself to one of the, the, the trains at London's Canary Wharf. Now, um, I don't know about you, but I think the difficulty is if you've got a wife or a partner who is hell-bent on making political statements and you're the top or one of the guys who's at the top of a particular um, organisation, in this particular case, the Transport for London, I mean... You, it doesn't show any loyalty to him, does it? No, no, exactly. I mean, that's the happy, you know, the happy unless enough. You, unless the crime, the punishment fits the crime, we, we can we can keep going round in circles forever. I mean, I bet her house is insulated. Yeah, well, you know, one point seven million pound house. I bet that's fully uh, insulated. I think you've hit the nail on the head, really, because I think the trouble is these people who are. Uh, you know, making the protests. So many of them are in a position to be able to do something about it. And, I mean, much as everybody would like to think that if you insulate your house, suddenly uh, the world becomes a, a, a much easier place to live in. I think if you were to go across to the island of La Palma and uh, see the volcano exploding, I think you'd know very well that it's nothing to do with just putting insulation exactly. in your house, wouldn't you? Yeah, a bit of polythene up in up in roof will save the world. I'm sorry, but it won't. I mean, we had him yesterday, didn't we? Flying into space, ninety-year-old uh, Captain yeah. Kirk or whatever. Yeah. Hang on a minute. Uh, how much how much fuel does that take? How much do they ozone or whatever it is that you know we used to be burning all of them? How much? And yet everybody's sending rockets to Mars, Moon, everywhere. I mean, you need to come down on that a bit first, don't you? Than just insulating somebody's loft. I think a lot of this, again, is um, the media selecting things as if they've got an academic way of looking at it. Because I think you and I and anybody who's really 
looking for things to say hang on that's not right you can see that you know you can't have on the same bulletin Shatner going up having a, a great laugh and everybody thinking it's wonderful and then uh, come yeah. down and look at the people who were blocking the, the motorways and protesting and making yeah. life difficult for people in one of the smaller geographical smaller countries on the planet and then trying to say yeah. that everybody's got to insulate the, the houses. I mean, it's just bonkers, isn't it? Yeah. The, the other thing with these rockets and this, that and the other, they're, they're all going to Mars and here. Listen, put your own planet in order first and then go and see if there's any, you know, they, they're trying to say, oh, well, we're sending these to see if we can send people up there to live. Whoa, no, hang on a minute. The way you, you, you're saying is we're going all burn in hell, you know, if it if it warms up too much. So you're not get there anyway. <laughs> so sort this planet out, Earth first, and then go and have a look somewhere else. Okay, we come to our next point, which is ten nations, including Germany, Italy, Spain, and Belgium, join the French in signing a joint statement that calls on the UK to abide by the terms of the Brexit trade agreement and ensure continuity for French fishing fleets. They take particular issue with Britain's demand that uh, French vessels supply geolocation data to get a license, saying it's not provided for in the deal. But the statement also rose back on threats coming from the Elysee Palace in recent weeks, calling on all sides to calmly negotiate a solution. France accuses Britain of violating the post-Brexit negotiation and um, by denying licences to French fishermen who have historically fished in UK waters. But London says licences have only been denied to boats where skippers were unable to provide evidence of their traditional grounds. The statements uh, by the 11 EU nations came after a meeting of agriculture and fisheries ministers in Luxembourg and a week after French President Macron called for more pressure to be applied to Britain in the dispute. Um, it was uh, the, the, the saying they're trying to push the UK to respect the Brexit deal. It doesn't seem like the French have been particularly respecting it, does it? Exactly, and them that didn't come up with the papers of where they used to fish is because they, they were illegally fishing in UK waters. That's, that, that's the problem. They were, they, they were always in UK waters. Well, right? well, but that's I've... illegal, so now they say, well, fetch us, fetch us your, your maps and, your, and your, your, your log books and tell us where you were fishing, and if, if you're fishing in the right area, then you can have another licence. You know? I don't think I don't think there's anything really that um, anybody can immediately do to solve what's going on because basically it's almost like you know they've known about all these things for very very many years now so they could have had something in place which could have maybe quickly solved I mean surely if the French feel that strongly about it they could apply to british ports and be given maybe a permit via a via via a british port something like that there's got to be something that they well, can do exactly i mean they've been going on about this for donkey's years so when they were all negotiating if you if you negotiate the right way yeah well you you have that part and we have this part then that'll do but it's like all these other things now that uh lorry drivers uh, 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 dock dock, uh, dock crane drivers. This, hang on. All of a sudden, we've got a massive shortage. 
Well, we didn't have before the pandemic, but now we've got a massive shortage of everything. How does that work? It seems to me, from looking like we are back from Spain back to the UK, it's almost like there's a group of people sitting in a room every day from all the different media sources thinking, what can we really hit Britain with today? Because basically, each time they've given us something or they've given Britain something, they've started to find an answer to it. And so the next day, they'll give them a different problem. Um, I mean, it's almost as if, you know, there are forces about who want to really put England through this, don't they? Yeah, well, they do. I mean, all the EU are saying, listen, we really need to do so much at UK to see if we can swing it, swing the media back to to tell them in the UK, the people at UK, that you really need to come and rejoin us again. You know what I mean? That's what it seems like to me. Yeah. That they're all they're all fetching up all these negativities uh, so that people will go, oh, well, it's through Brexit, this, and that's Brexit, and that's Brexit. Yeah, we already had Brexit done, and then this, this uh, pandemic came in, and, and since the pandemic, we've got a shortage of everything. You know what I mean? What, nonsense. what you don't seem to ever get is the fact that Britain used to run as a nation before, um, if you go back to the 70s and, and uh, all right, at the end of the 70s, they yeah. did have problems with the balance of payments, but you're always going to get cyclical problems anyway. But it's almost like, um, yeah. they. Ah, OK, well, let's go to the next one. This is a backbench Tory MP. And he's escaped censure for saying two senior British Asian ministers look the same to me. It was revealed the pair have a running joke about being mistaken for each other. This is North Wiltshire's James Gray face calls to quit. And the remarks he made about Sajid Javid, the health secretary, and the education secretary, Nadim Zawi, at the House of Commons reception. He mixed up the Iraq-born Mr. Zawi, who has a distinctive white beard and wears glasses, and clean-shaven Sajid Javid, whose family came to the UK from Pakistan. Now, when his error was pointed out to him, he said to have told the guests, they all look the same to me. Uh, Well, of course, as you'd expect, he denied using that phrase, but told uh, the Mail Online he'd confused the two men with each other. He added they were also close, long-term friends of his. Um, What do you reckon about all this? But but then everybody will make it into a big hoo-ah, you know. Oh, well, you know, he's coming this racist thing because it always fetch that up, no matter what it is. But, I mean, you, you... how many times have me and you mistaken people, you know, and said, oh, I, I, oh, yes, such a... And you go, no, that's him over there. Oh, sorry, because you meet that many people, don't you? You know, sometimes you get people's names wrong. But it, they, they'll have just laughed it off. It's only the media that's going to start stirring the ball up again. Well, the, know, the same... Oh, he must resign. Must resign. Well, the, the same in the paper, an ally of uh, Sajid Javid said he was frequently confused with Mr Zahawi and also with fellow Cabinet Minister Alok Sharma. Um, Saj and Nadim have a long-running joke about it. Uh, this is apparently according to the... Exactly. Po- it's even worse. They're, they're not... Saj yeah, is often mistaken. They're not mistaken. about it because it's just a mistake of his name. Well, I, I did catch something which was um, to do with um, Marcus Rashford, and apparently he was um, he was asked his reaction to something, and um, 
he reckoned that uh, he, he gets, he, you know, this is him getting his own back. He said, I, I can, can often get confused with the politicians, you know, and I think this is the problem. Exactly. It's, it's like you can't do anything without upsetting anybody these days, can you? Exactly. I remember when a comedian could tell a joke and nobody would be offended. You know what I mean? But I'm old ass, aren't I? Yeah. <laughs> I must be now because no matter what anybody says, whether it's on news, whether it's on an interview or anything, somebody's waiting to jump on any any little thing to stir up the hornet's nest. Well, I was talking. And it's this mainly all the media. I was talking this morning uh, with. Um Eric and Rob and we were looking at um, John Barnes has written a book and I do like John Barnes and I do like uh, I think he yeah. writes very sensibly but um, the, he's got this new book out obviously but the thing is they were talking about an incident in the Everton Liverpool derby when he flicked a, ban a banana skin off the pitch very deftly with his foot apparently now um, they, yeah. they, the, the, the book actually or at least the article said this was one of the most um, well-documented things that have happened in football and John Barnes. I'm a blooming avid fan of the Reds and I've never remembered that one. I, I can't remember that neither. I mean, at the end of the day, well, I, I you do... See, you go ahead. They'll just, they'll just stir everything up. You know, they'll just make anything up just to, start to try and stir the hornet's nest up. And, and I mean, that with Hungary when they were saying they were racially abusing England players because they were booing. Hungary didn't take the knee, but UK did take the knee. Uh, England did take the knee, right? Well, if somebody wants to boo you, they'll boo you no matter what you're doing, won't they? They're losing you know, sight of reality, it, aren't they? I mean, exactly. you know, it's it's exactly. almost it's almost as if if you don't accept that you've got to kneel uh, at the start of a, fo of a football match, then you, you're obviously a hooligan and a terrorist or this, that and the other. I thought the police went in mob-handed yeah. as well. I thought that was really bad. And normally I'm a big fan of, you know, the police having to do a difficult job. But I think they did go in, probably the stewards, weren't they, rather than the police. They did go in mob-handed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But you, you can't stop five. You can't stop five thousand people booing. No matter who you are, you well, could have you could have five thousand police there and stewards and everything. And if some if all the crowd are booing, you're not going to go charging in there to try and stop them all booing, are you? You know. Okay. Well, we'll go next to uh, Olympic diving star Tom Daly. He's called for a boycott of next year's FIFA World Cup in Qatar because of the host country's extreme rules about LGBT people and women. The Olympic athlete who won gold and medal in bronze at Tokyo 2020 said he was making it his mission to ensure countries that criminalise homosexuality are not allowed to compete at future games. Um, and then it goes on to say who confirmed his sexuality in 2014 in an emotional YouTube video to fans said countries like Qatar that criminalise against basic human rights should not be allowed to host a sporting event. Um, this was at an award for his Attitude Sport Award at Virgin Atlantic's 2021 Attitude Awards on Monday night and concerns have been raised about the treatment facing gay fans attending next week World Cup due to the country's conservation, uh, the religious code, prohibiting same-sex relations. Um, I mean, really, it's like, a f it's like open 
day for everyone to join in and throw their political um, opinions into everybody's sort of way of looking at anything now, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're all against, you know, uh, uh, the, the human rights being abused and, and uh, women being abused. I get all that, right? But listen, you can't keep going into countries. You know what the rules are in there. You see, in UK, they don't seem to have any rules. Anybody can come in and do what they want. But I'm completely agree with uh, the way that they treat women and the way that uh, they, they treat gay people. But that's not for us to go sh bleating and shouting and bawling at them because y you'll not change it. If they don't want to change it, they'll not change it. And, they, you know, and if the World Cup, it's a World Cup about sport. And, yes, there'll be, there'll be gay footballers there, you know, on the pitch that, you know, have not come out or whatever. But... It's nothing, there's nothing you can do about it if that's what the rules that they make. Well, I've, I've got to say, I, I've got a totally different way of thinking about this Qatar thing anyway. Why should it be there when it's totally inappropriate? It's the wrong time of the year for certain... I mean, all, always some countries will be disadvantaged. But we're supposed to be supporting a game which is worldwide, uh, especially with the, the likes of our leagues and Spain's leagues and uh, uh, the Premier League and all that sort of stuff. Um, it's all at the wrong times. I mean, this is yet another reason why it's so stupid to have it there, isn't it? Well, I get, I get it with, with the temperatures and this, that and the other. But as I say, you know, when we've had, we've had competitions in winter and it's freezing cold, these that live in a temperature that's normally averaging about 28, right, they could say, well, hang on, we have to come and play when we're playing snow and God knows what and this, that, the other, it's freezing cold. Well, you and they're saying that all these stadiums are going to be air-conditioned. I don't know how they're going to work that one, but that's what they're saying. Well, yeah, it, it, it seems a mad time. So they could have had it in their their coolest, coolest time at year, not the hottest time at year. I get that. Yeah, it's all, it's all about the money, though. Going back to to uh, Tom Daly and uh, Honest Jay from Birmingham writes: Did he or did he not go to Beijing Olympics? China has such a great record on human rights. He'd shut up if he was exactly. competing in Qatar, guaranteed a courier. Well, I mean, when all said and done, that, that's the problem, isn't it? I mean, it's like if the money suits you, you go along with the, yeah, with the politics. With it. Yeah. If you have the World Diving Championships in Qatar next year, he'll be there. Yeah. Guaranteed. Okay. He won't be, he won't, and, and I'll tell you what, the lead up to it, he won't be bleating and, and screaming and sure, when he's getting serious good money for, for going there you know they make me laugh then it's it's a double-sided coin you know okay here's the last one for this week then which is about somebody right. called quinn ty a 40 year old found in percentage of uh, possession of 13 kilograms of drugs concealed within vacuum sealed packages in the boot of his car after being stopped by officers he was initially told to pull over. Uh, this was on the motorway close to uh, Southway, which is between Penrith and Carlisle, up in the south and the north uh, west of England. Yeah, at around yeah, it's, it's around 12:30 p.m. on September the 9th. However, he accelerated away from officers and was pursued for several minutes before being stopped. Uh, this is the BBC reporting it. Um, 
He's an illegal immigrant of no fixed abode. Would you believe that? Um, How does that work? Well, where, where, where do they keep sending drugs to? Which house then? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> well, he appeared at yeah. Carlisle Crown Court on Monday to be sentenced after admitting possession of a Class B drug and in so doing breached a suspended sentence already in place yeah, for an earlier it. conviction yeah, <laughs> relating to cannabis production. How many times have we had that? A suspended sentence. Oh. Well, I'm going to give you eight year, but it's a su suspended for two. So if you're a good lad in two year, then you won't have to do anything. It, it's a complete and utter joke. Well, as, as on the on the first thing, if you don't make the laws and the rules and people break them, if you don't give them the right sentence, then everybody will just keep doing what they want. It's well, nonsense. This this poor lad was going around his uh, illegal business. Um, and obviously he tried to evade the police and officers noted a strong smell of cannabis coming from the car and following a search recovered packages hidden within laundry bags inside a cardboard box. 13 kilograms of <laughs> cannabis worth 130,000. I mean, they, they're making Britain and England in this case look absolute yeah. mugs, aren't they? Yeah, the, the the law is an ass. It needs firming up and tightening up. Forget all these do-gooders. That, that's all they want to do all day is, oh, you can't do this. Oh, he's a poor lad. He didn't do well at school. And they, No, no, no. The, the law is the law. That's it. Abide I, by it or do the crime, do the time. I don't know where they're going to go with this one because it looks like uh, the, the, the sensible people, the people who prosper uh, from what's going on are all the people who basically don't keep the rules. And it seems to me that you can virtually go into Britain, start your own illegal um, drug smuggling or whatever it is, and um, probably get away with it for years on end. It just so happens that every now and again the police might get you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm with you with that. You're listening to Vince Tracy and Neil Coble. It's your calling. What's in the news this week, especially from the UK and from Spain? Your calling. Yeah, it's beautiful, Evans. It's absolutely beautiful. Really, it's been a, been a lovely day today. Uh, well, I got a bit of sunburn this morning. I was out on a job. I didn't take a hat with me. I got a bit of sunburn on my head. So, uh, quite unusual, but we, you know, yourself, this can change from one day to the next. Yeah. Uh, I do remember, actually, a little story. <laughs> it was October the 13th. I'll never forget the date. It was a couple of years ago I was on a job. And uh, um, uh, it, it, it suddenly turned quite cold. In fact, very cold. And uh, I was, we were outdoors, and it was quite a critical part of the job. And I had to, I had to stay there to oversee what was going on. I ended up uh, raiding the dog's basket to get a blanket out of it, to, to, to wrap around me. <laughs> Because I was that cold, I, just, I had nothing, <laughs> I had nothing in the car to stick on, and I always remember that October the thirteenth. So I'm always <laughs> wary of that. Okay, well we're talking about the um, National Day, October the twelfth, and a military parade this year that was smaller than usual, but which symbolised a gradual return to normality following last year's strict coronavirus restrictions. 
Thousands of people turned up for the event, despite recommendations by the health authorities to watch it on TV to reduce the risk of virus transmission. Uh, the Prime Minister, of course, Pedro Sanchez of the Socialist PSOE party, who heads a leftist coalition, was booed by members of the uh, public as he arrived at Castellana Boulevard in Madrid on Tuesday morning. The jeers continuing during the military parade with the public yelling, get out and resign, Sanchez. Now, I don't know whether or not they were aiming this at, as some papers suggest, democracy, <laughs> and others at mm. him as a person. What did you get um, from that particular celebration on National Day? Oh, it's very easy, Vince. As you know, you get a, a, any peaceful uh, demonstration passing through a city that quickly turns into riots with the police and uh, uh, and the rest. And it is very um, obvious that it's been taken over by anarchists uh, and minorities have taken over the whole thing. So it's it's to me, uh, I believe it's just the same. I don't think that's a reflection of society on Sanchez's uh, record as 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 leader of uh, the government. Um, though it's been the speckled career, that's for sure. But nearer to what it used to be, and the Spain National Day, known officially as Fiesta Nacional de España, has gone through several name changes over the years. Once known as Dia de la Raza. This reference to an alleged uh, Spanish race was replaced in uh, 1935 with Dia de la Hispanidad, uh, meant to symbolize yeah. the unity of Spain and Latin American nations with Hispanic roots. Uh, October mm. the 12th coincides with the arrival of Christopher Columbus in America, where the date is observed variously as Columbus Day. Uh, what do you make of most of this? Is it sort of something that's strong here in Spain? I mean, obviously, people like the holiday, but uh, do they like the tradition? I think we, well, yeah, they love a holiday. <laughs> That's the first one. I don't think I don't think the reason the holiday really is that important to most people. Um, but yeah, I mean, Spain has a, a shall you say, a very proud past, as a proud in, in in as accomplished. I mean, it doesn't really mean that taking all the gold out of South America and, and giving and and uh, paying them back with syphilis, which is basically what they did. <laughs> Uh, is not exactly something to be proud of. But they were, you have to remember, they were a massive uh, seafaring, all-conquering nation, empire, a uh, massive empire. As all nations seem to go through phases, you know, whatever happened to the Roman Empire and the Egyptian Empire, yeah. uh, the Turkish Empire, whatever happened to them, they just disappear. So uh, we're probably witnessing now the, the demise of the British Empire, which is slowly but surely disappearing into... Uh, Demo full democracy for all for all areas. Uh, yeah, with this uh, the Spanish day. Yeah, I think it's 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 a, a a time for to be proud of your nation. I'm not sure as they actually do. Certainly, the youngsters. I'm not sure as they they do take that on board as being a reason, other than just a day off. To be honest with you, you know, now and again people ask, uh, what is British? What does it mean? I mean, we're talking about a day of Spanishness, really, aren't we? So, mm. what would that really mean? What do you think they're trying to get at? Oh, the Spanish are very proud of being Spanish, far more than the wee British are proud of being British, without a shadow of a doubt. You've, you've only got to see the, the way the fiestas are celebrated in every single village. Every village is proud of its, its history and its fiestas. Uh, no matter of wars, civil wars, Franco, dictatorships, all manner of of, of, of uh, ruling over the centuries has not diminished it. 
uh, and I'm very proud of uh, my Spanish friends and I keep telling them they must hang on to that because that's something that's obviously missing in the UK. I mean, you how many how many fiestas are there in local fiestas in UK? Very few. You've got the hobby horse down in Badstow, half a dozen others, somebody rolling a cheese down a hill somewhere, you know, quirk, quirky little things. But here, they still have the fiesta. Here, when the bell tolls at the church, everyone goes up to the church to see who has died. Uh, it still happens. It, it's I love, I love the, the the culture of Spain. I really do, and I feel it's something that's been sadly lost in most other countries. This is very interesting to me because obviously my first um, degree level study was to do with uh, recreation and the community. And we did look at community quite a lot and try and thrash out what it really does mean. And of course, when you look at uh, United Kingdom, which I didn't feel, certainly even as far as the year 2000, I didn't feel it was being forced at us the way it has become the United Kingdom. I always felt that it was England on its own, getting on for 70 million, stood tall and proud, Another uh, fiercely proud nation, Scotland, uh, not that far up the road, just past uh, Carlisle. Out to Wales, where you have a very distinct culture, nationality and all the rest. And a million people over in Northern Ireland who are just probably as bewildered now as they were when uh, the British went and did their worst over in, uh, in Ireland. I mean, I think Spain has got an easier way of being Spanish rather than... Uh, four nations trying to be this thing British, which really is rather a silly thing for me. Well, well, I was brought up British, as I thought, but I now, with a passing of years, realise that I'm English, not British. Uh, and in, you know, with the, the likes of the Scottish Parliament, uh, the uh, the goings on at Stornoway in the Northern Ireland, and now we've got the the Welsh Parliament as well, um, feeling their boots. It's it's divided. Uh, a, a, a once great country which that doesn't need dividing uh, uh, it's dividing for the wrong reasons you know for some reason the, the, the Scots always sing Flower of Scotland at football matches trying to celebrate the one battle they actually did win against <laughs> the British they lost the rest <clears throat> um, the Welsh haven't got a battle song <laughs> they don't seem to have won any well they've, they've, uh, they've managed to construct off a strike I suppose if Sorry? if if you've put off as dyke in the way, I mean at least you've got you've yeah. got a pretty strong border, haven't you? That's a good ditch. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's just it is sad. It's true, Vince. I I I've always felt I was brought up British, and I've it's been robbed. I've been robbed of me. I'm now forced to say, well, I'm, yeah, I'm English. Uh, why? Because well, I'm, I'm English because I'm not Scottish, Irish, or Welsh. Therefore, I am I am English, and I, and I'm I'm I think that's horrible. It's a horrible thing that's been forced on me um, that we not, can't say we're British yet if I were lucky enough to be in the Olympics uh, as you know I'm an athlete and uh, if I was in the in the uh, the Olympics I'll be uh, GB Great Britain but Great Britain of course is just the island of Great Britain it's only an island and you've got UK you know British art it, it's we've got so many names for our country you've got an English football team you don't have a, a Great Britain football team you'll have a British uh, Lions for playing rugby 
you got the English <laughs> cricket side. It's 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 divided when it suits them and not divided at other times. Mm. I don't really understand it. Well, it, 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 there's a penchant for confusion always. And, you know, I, I suppose I started life in this direction, coming from an Irish family, uh, born in Liverpool area, and obviously trying to... Um, take on board the politics of my forebears without really trying to sort of get irate about everything. Coming back to Spain, and yeah. we're talking about the song that's routinely played at official events, including the October the 12th military parade. And this is quite, uh, well, some people are saying it's an insult. It's uh, Gabarain who's written it, the Defence and Interior Ministries have declined to comment on the matter and it's about a Basque priest who died in 1991 well known in Roman Catholic circles as the writer of religious songs some of which are sung during mass services and in August several former students of two schools where he taught in Madrid and in the Basque country came forward with accusation of sexual abuse um, are you aware of that side of some of the some of the things we're honouring well it, it no, well, uh, the, the thing with sexual abuse, I always thought in Spain it never, ever happened. I thought how horrible to read where, where things were going on in the UK and the States, etc. Uh, you know, kids being molested and raped. And I thought how wonderful to live in this country where it obviously never happens. Well, of course it does. Um, but the sad thing you then realise over the years is that it's a total disgrace to the family. Uh, if, if a child's got to say she was raped or interfered with or a boy was interfered with, it becomes a disgrace to the family, so it's never mentioned. Uh, and very few people seem to be uh, brought to book for it. Uh, it's more open nowadays, that's for sure. But uh, at the time, bear, bear in mind, I'm near 47 years. Uh, certainly in the early years, I truly believed that it just didn't happen in Spain. I really did. I really did. I thought, in this wonderful country, there's no child molestation. We all know they dote on the kids, I believe. They always have done. Um, but you, you, I just naturally drew two and two together and made five yes it does go on in spain uh yes it does go on amongst uh, obviously the, the the report from the the vatican was it last week it was like yeah. two hundred and thirty thousand, two hundred thirty thousand priests or something around it. it it's uh it's uh nah. it, it's an awful world that we're living in with with children i don't i don't see uh how we can protect the kids without giving out really really severe sentences public sentences to these people as some sort of deterrent but if it's in their mind that they have to molest a kid and they can't stop themselves then it's a it's a sickness uh i, I find it hard to draw a line between a sickness and a crime to be honest. well I, i'm the same and i think that that's therein lies the problem because too many people want to make excuses but if you're for example if we take the the idea of a priest because obviously you know that my religion is catholic and i and i'm totally and utterly uh, convinced that these people just get into the church to use that sort of um power that they have with people um, I mean, basically, these people, if they want to find a way, they will find a way of doing it, which suggests to me that it's not an illness. It's a wickedness. Um, Terry, I'm going to go back straight away to the fact that the October the 12th National Day also marks yeah. a, a very rele relevant religious festival, the Day of the Virgin de Pilar, um, representation of the Virgin Mary that's considered the patron saint of Zaragoza. And, uh, I mean, the, the thing is, it, it ends up getting quite confused because 
for most people, they know that there has always been a proximity between the church and state, whereas now, in some places and in some ways, there's a dichotomy rather than a closeness. And I think all of this is actually quite confusing if anybody who even has lived here doesn't really bother to mm. go and find out the, the facts and look at the origins of these types of things. Uh, well, certainly with religion, Spain being a Catholic country, um, I mean, they, they, they've got their history of persecution of the Jews, for instance, uh, etc. Um, most of them were, were banished to the, the northern side of Spain, to Girona and Zaragoza. In fact, anybody who's got a surname Zaragoza normally means they're a Jew because they, went, they were forced to live in Zaragoza. Right. Um, so there was, uh, but it's to me now, nowadays, uh, like the rest of the world, I think, the, the public in general do not turn to religion. The old folks still do. If you go visit any church, um, you're not going to see a cross-section of youngsters there as no. such, as relative to the society. It's still very much an older person's thing, and it was very much um, what, what, what throughout history has held society together. The church has been there to hold the villages together, the fear of God to keep people on the straight and narrow, to stop people from, from committing crimes, etc. That's been there and, and, and has worked over the years. It's always been abused, no doubt. Yeah. Um, but sadly, it's it's tipping the balance when you consider the sheer numbers, uh, certainly regarding child abuse. Um, yeah, I think it must be destroying the idea of the church in most of the young kids' uh, uh, minds that it's not really something maybe we should be supporting. Well, you... you go into the church and rightly say there's a lot of older people there but I think this is a sign of the times as well when you actually look at the way people behave um, the older people obviously because of their just their very physical being uh, is a different kettle of fish to the young people who can and often do go out and make uh, life so different and then they've got to try and get back on the straight and narrow at some time in the future but stay with children because I, I spotted this in the paper yeah. should children be taken to bars what responsibility do parents have if their children go with them is there really such a thing as child phobia or is it sometimes called pedophobia <laughs> well, it's. Uh, I'm not sure that that means the same thing. I don't know why it's written like that. Mm. These are questions that arise every time an establishment decides to ban minors from setting foot on their premises. And this uh, latest case is concerned uh, ba Balacana, a restaurant in the Basque city of Bilbao that's been criticised by uh, Facua uh, Consumers in Action for not allowing children access on, a, on its web pages. The uh, restaurant clearly states that its premises are reserved exclusively for adults. But according to the Consumer Association, barring entry in, uh, to an establishment on the basis of age is discriminatory abuse of the rights of admission and at variance with the law that allows children into bars and restaurants if accompanied by a responsible adult. So, uh, the FACUA is demanding that the establishment be fined and is encouraging the public to report any similar um, norms in other bars or restaurants. So, mm. interesting this one, isn't it? Well, oh, okay. Uh, one of my first jobs I had a, in a pub when I was an apprentice. I went to work in a pub uh, and kids were not allowed in the pub. Um, I think you had to be over 14 or something before you could even be brought in with an adult. Um, but the kids weren't allowed in the pub. 
move on to when I moved, came here to Spain in 1974. For the minute my kids were, were, were born, um, they came with us. Um, we we always had dinner out on a Sunday. Sunday lunch was always a, a family day out. And the kids, from the from the minute they were born, literally, they were with us in the restaurants. And they, they grew up. Um, they know how to sit at the table, know how to behave themselves. Obviously, when they're young and frisky, and then you have to take them out and keep give them... Uh, Keep them, you know, keep them occupied. But we always had my wife. always made sure there was ample paper and crayons and things to keep them occupied. And we, you know, we did that. And they they learned to grow up. This is not in a pub, of course. It's a restaurant. But yeah. most restaurants are stroke pubs. Um, if you look at the the what we consider a pub now, which is basically a rowdy place where everyone's shouting and bawling and screaming and effing and blinding. Yeah, no, it's not a good place to take a kid. Um, but Spanish pubs aren't really like that. They're not that bad. Well, no, Spanish. Actually, Spanish. A Spanish pub is a club. A Spanish bar. Uh, a Spanish bars um, aren't really like that. But the other thing is, every village has got a bar. Um, there's, a little, there's a little place I go to up in Albacete, which I like going up there. A couple of friends who live up there. There's not one shop in the whole of the village, but there's one bar. There's nothing else, but there is a bar. But the, the bar was always a social centre, and certainly in that case, it's a social centre of the village. Always has been. You didn't. You wouldn't make money in the bar. Most bars in the afternoon years ago, as I remember, Spanish bars uh, were full of pensioners playing dominoes. There wasn't a drink to be seen. <laughs> they were sitting there in the warm with the light, using somebody else's warm and light, playing dominoes or playing cards. There wasn't a drink to be seen, and the barman falling half asleep behind the bar. Uh, but you know, but the place was busy. He's not making money. He's, he's, he's a social. Is there as a uh, well that that of you course don't a, you don't get a bar to make money you know? no but that did used to be the same in a lot of the British uh, aspect of having a bar and then a bar restaurant so oh, the, yeah, it, yeah. it's a bit of an assault on a way of life really isn't it well well how do you mean well I mean you you always had the village and a village pub and a church and you know the children were part of the growing up process. Um, I mean, if you look at, for example, I'm reading that there was a, a place in Murthia, a, the owner of a bar called Venus put up a sign that said any child who is not uh, supervised in this bar by his mother or father will become the property of the bar and will be sold as a slave. Yeah. And of course, yeah, everybody was up in arms about that one. And yeah, um, Vince, I, I remember spending my, 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 my younger days sat in the car with a bottle of Imta and a packet of crisps <laughs> while my mum was in, in the pub. In the pub. No, that's true. It's true. I I would I was I realised there's no way you're allowed to set foot in a pub. Um, it was behind closed doors and the and the windows are all fr all frosted, aren't they? You couldn't even see into it until like you know until you you you're in your late teens or you know, then you can actually get set foot in the pub. It's it's almost like a temple. You know you're not allowed in it till you're a certain age. Yeah. So I never certainly set foot in in a in a British pub uh, until I actually went to work in one. Really, to be honest with you. Well, just so that it's you don't one of those things. Just so that you don't feel deprived or anything like that, I was exactly the same. It wasn't until I started work that I managed to get to uh, have a shandy. Um, OK, I'm going to yeah. move to something else, Terry. And it's a driver who received a fine from the DGT for driving during the daytime without having his lights on. Uh, has shared an image, um, and it's to do with an extra lane. Now... Do you know what that would actually mean? They're talking about an extra lane because I didn't quite understand what they were saying. Um, they're saying no, that, um, that when the sky is blue and the sun is shining, the last thing we think of, of course, is to turn the lights on. 
But in certain mm. situations, even during daylight hours, it's a traffic law in Spain to drive with the lights turned on. Um, now, they're talking about this guy. I don't know that one. Well, they're saying while driving in the extra lane. So, of course, it's obviously something that might be in the translation. There are certain stretches mm. of road where it is mandatory to turn on the lights. Well, I think we're okay with that. One of these is the mm. additional lane in the opposite direction where, in addition to having the lights on, it's necessary to drive at a limited speed, either 60 or 80 kilometres per hour. Um, oh, I guess they mean when they're overtaking and you're in the other lane. Yeah, that's probably it. It would be quite well, difficult. I've never heard it. It makes, it makes sense, to be honest with you. you, know, you may, I've never even thought about it. It does make sense. Because when you're driving in your own lane, you're looking at cars going the same direction as you and judging the speed. Of course, a car coming the other way in your lane is going twice as fast as you think it is. Um, so to have some sort of lighting system on it, I can. it does make sense, that, truthfully. I've never heard of that one before, but it does make sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing about what I do is I'm looking for things that I don't understand, which I hope other people who maybe live here and listen mm. will maybe think well hang on i didn't know that either and of course yeah. normally you give me an answer because obviously you've lived here long enough and i didn't yeah. understand that one but in actual fact it would be quite difficult in english although you would remark about the oncoming traffic and you're in uh, maybe their lane for this particular um, part of the road proceedings you know the the road repairs or something um, okay. Well, it's, it's that measurable in the UK. I can imagine you need your lights on all the time. I'd imagine. It's, one <laughs> yeah. it's generally cloudy, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. And uh, now then, apparently we've had phone conversations and discussions between the UK Foreign Secretary Liz Truss and her Spanish counterpart Jose Manuel Alvarez on October the seventh. So we're only going back a week. And Maros yeah. Shekovic, Vice President of the European Commission for Institute inter-institutional relations um, all three agreeing that this was a good time to start and hope to see uh, a satisfactory outcome for all concerned with this particular statement issued in advance of the meeting which said the UK and Gibraltar governments are working very closely together and Gibraltar will continue to be fully involved in all aspects of the negotiation and um, it does seem rather as this is already going on behind closed doors and it seems to be that some commentators in Gibraltar have commented com commented that as UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson decided to take a holiday at the weekend it might have been more appropriate to spend time in Gibraltar which he says has an unbreakable bond with the UK rather than stay in Marbella so did you have any thoughts about what was going on and anything that's come across your information well, have you been to Gibraltar? Oh, many times. I love it. Yeah? Well, uh, there's nothing there to lure me there, I promise you. Well, <laughs> so, I, I think it, that it, the, it reason, the reason why I like it is because, basically, it's so different to Spain. And um, I, I love to yeah, go... Yeah, do you know the first thing First thing that I spotted? I'll never forget this. I walk, walked across from La Línea, the Spanish side, across the through the, 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 the control to the British side. And the very first thing I saw within yards was the fact that I couldn't see the curbs. The curbs were full of rubbish, just like you get in the UK. Nothing was clean. Whereas, you know, in Spain, our roads are swept and cleaned every every day. Yeah. When I was working up in Bilbao, they used to wash the, wash the streets every day. Uh, it, it, it's such a clean nation. And it was so apparent 
just crossing those short few metres from La Ligna to Gibraltar, I first suddenly saw, look at all that crap and rubbish in, 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 against the curbs in the road, you know? And yeah, I, thought, oh dear. I, I think the first thing I s sort of uh, took note of, um, obviously that the planes crossing the runway uh, is rather a strange <laughs> situation, uh, and also the fact that Tesco has, has got a big presence there, but I thought uh, it looks so like Truro, where I lived in Cornwall. You know, it does have a, a mm. very, very sharp... Uh, comparison with Truro and what was interesting for me the last time I was there was that I did speak to quite a number of people from uh, they told me they were Gibraltarians and uh, they were saying how much they value their part of uh, being Gibraltarian as opposed to not being British and not being uh, Spanish so it would appear oh, yeah. to it would appear oh, no doubt about that the, 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 I got stuck there once for about three or four days uh, it was when you were a time when you couldn't. The border was closed. You couldn't cross from Spain to Gibraltar. The only way we could get there was to get a ferry across to uh, uh, the Algiers or somewhere. Uh, I can't remember it was across to Morocco. Yeah. And then then get get the boat from Morocco to Gibraltar. So that's quite a sea trip just to cross <laughs> literally a handful of meters of ground. Uh, but we were we were going back and with the, the bad weather um, dropped on us and uh, we were actually stuck there for three or four days longer than we thought but it gave me a chance to uh, talk to a lot of people and i found them really really a very proud nation and very proud of them being gibraltarian uh but me being a foreigner i would never be accepted it was very plain to me that i would never i'll be yeah i just felt i felt like a black person stepping off <laughs> off the boat in britain mm. you know back in the back in the 60s from the, the from the west indies where there were, there were people looking at them and uh, realizing they're different to them, and, not, and and black people not being accepted in the UK. I felt exactly the same there, to be honest with you. Talking yeah. to people, you know, quite closely about things, about commerce and business. And I, I, actually, what I started it, I said I'm here to set up a business. Told a lie. I thought it was good to start <laughs> a conversation. And immediately, from being a friendly tourist, I became an enemy because <laughs> I was somebody who wasn't one of them who was going to take money out of their pockets. Wow. It was really that apparent. Mm. It really did. The, 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 uh, the veil came off very quickly. Uh, I'll never forget that one either. It was quite a quite an eye opener. But yeah, they're a very uh, very proud. Ninety nine and a half percent was it voted to to yeah. remain Gibraltarian to to not be part of the car market. Mm. Um, uh, they are very proud people, I must admit. But you you live on a small island like that. That's not very healthy, is it? No, I um, don't think it's. Uh, even though it's not an island, obviously it's just a peninsula. But when you're living in such a small area. Um, you know, inbreeding is not that clever. Mm -hmm. Terry, just as we come to the end of our chat for this week, let me just ask your opinion regarding the fact that uh, we see plenty of pictures of the uh, volcano in La Palma. Uh, we don't mm. really seem to understand the amount of CO2 that's going up into the atmosphere. And yet mm. um, people in Britain are still sitting down, blocking the motorways, thinking that if we insulate the houses of all the poor people, uh, things are going to change straight away. Uh, that's a huge amount of lava going up, and I believe they've even had an earthquake there in the last 24 hours. Uh, it must be awful for those people there, mustn't it? Uh, it's shocking, yeah. I've been in, I've been involved in, we've been raising some money um, for the, for a particular particular village there, the one that first got hit. Um, and, that, and the town have been very gracious to keep in touch with us with, with what's going on. 
Yeah, you've, you've got, I think it's today, it was 165,000 tonnes of sulphur dioxide um, uh, a day being pumped out into the into the atmosphere. Um, I, I don't know, that's probably more than it's been pumped out of the whole of the UK uh, at any one time. Uh, of course, you can't stop uh, um, volcanoes. Volcanoes are the con- the biggest contrib- contributor to uh, to uh, to, the, to the climate change, so we say. But that's always happened. So you've got to yeah. rule that one out. You can't stop it. You're not going to. It's not going to change anything. You've just got to rule that. But it is a massive contributor to to what's well, happening in the world. You'd want people to understand it, Terry, and they don't seem to be wanting to explain it in the terms that the uh, obviously uh, uh, nobody's going to start wanting to see global warming and climate change uh, ridiculed, but. Um, nobody seems to understand that a lot of this is cyclical and no matter what we do, the temperatures mm. will change on the planet. And, you know, um, I just really despair at yeah, times te- at these people that sit down on the motorway. have always changed. The temperatures have always changed. In. I mean, when did you last go skiing on the Thames? <laughs> yeah, how come there's portraits in the National Gallery of people skiing on the Thames? Yeah. Uh, we've always had big sweeping changes in temperature. Uh, it gets hotter, it gets cooler, it gets hotter, it gets cooler. Yes, what we are doing is accelerating uh, the heating side of things. There's no doubt about it. But but climate change has always happened. Are we aggravating it? Yes, we are aggravating it. Yeah, but it will always happen. But maybe it's happening to a greater deg- degree than it would do normally. Or maybe it's happening quicker than it would do normally. Um, quite agree. Yeah, we do have to... Um, knuckle down we've got an awful lot of damage that we've done since the industrial revolution yeah um, we're all guilty of it um, we all need to make change and we are we are making change i mean we we always recycle everything that goes god knows how many bins we have to chuck it into but everything gets recycled in our house and has to go into the right bin uh i do have a feeling that all the separate bins at the end of the street get hoofed into one big heap somewhere but i like to think that we're doing our bits sort i've of seen thing. them um, doing we, it Terry. We do we, I've Sorry? seen I've seen the guys doing it. They collect individually and put them all in the yeah. bin together. That's it then. Uh, thank you to Neil Colborne and to Terry Whitehead. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next week with Europe Calling. <laughs> <laughs>